this is the craziest thing I've ever heard to use not showing up as a negotiation tool with administration. Fees in emergency departments are such that uh, there's serious raping and pillaging going on. You have two healthcare professionals pissing on each other. Hello, risk management fans. It's Greg Henry. And Rick Bucata. We're coming to you from separate locations via Skype. And let me tell you, this is going to be a great show for those of you who are case-based. Uh, we've got great cases today, stuff that's going to put poo-poo in your pants, going to make you want to cry, quit medicine. This is the kind of show for that you, you give to residents on Halloween just to frighten the living daylights out of them. Are you set for this show, Rick? Yes, I am, Greg, and it sounds like you may be a slightly off your medication today. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. We are. I'd like to think of you and I as the risk management equivalent of the Shanana, and we're greased and ready and to kick some butt here today on getting some medical legal topics really nailed down. I mean, we got great wines to talk about. We got great tastes to talk about. We got letters from fans. Come on. The show doesn't get any better than this. And we're not going to be interfered with by all these smart guys who we have on here as experts and stuff who, you know, whenever they're on, I always feel bad because they know so much more than we do, Rick. It's really well, bad. Well, speaking of that, uh, I wanted to give a little heads up to coming attractions uh, Greg um, Moore, our MDJD friend out of Madigan, got to give a shout out to uh, Joe Littner and uh, Maria Hugie, our friends up there. Well, in any case, Greg wrote this article with a young doctor by the name of Michael uh, Hudson, who is in Kuwait. So I wanted to say hello to him. We're going to do this in uh, a month or two. Catch the name of this article, Greg, Defenses to Malpractice, What Every Emergency Physician Should Know. Obviously, I like it already, Rick. I, I like we have it already. To do this, obviously, we have to do this uh, this article with a title like that. Every emergency physician should know these defenses. That's yeah. cool. You know, I, I think that uh, you know Greg Moore has been one of our real friends since this started. Uh, we've had we've had excellent people contribute, and I'm looking forward to that interview with Greg because he always has good practical things to say. But we, that's upcoming. Let's let's get going with what we're doing today. Well, I'm going to tell you one other thing's coming up. We got a oh, we got a something session else with, with Mike Weinstock, the um, author of Bounce Backs One Two. Uh, I think he's up to Bounce Backs number twenty three uh, right now, isn't it? Well, I, I I've been an author in the first couple. Uh, I I think we do have another one coming out shortly. But uh, Mike Weinstock is a good young guy, and uh, again, we always learn things from the cases he presents. And also, we have uh, three letters uh, that I uh, – well, actually, they're not letters. They're emails that I think have got some good points and questions that we can uh, pick up uh, towards the end of this session. But, Gregory, you have been wetting your pants over these cases, so let's get started. Well, I, stop the presses. Stop the presses. I, I had a discussion – you know – I wish we actually still had presses because I would love to come in and say that someday. But the bottom line is I had a conversation yesterday, Rick, and I want to get this one out on the table. This is like everybody else who writes to us, but he just picked up the phone and called me because they were having a problem. Here's the case. Here's the problem. Jump in. Number one, smaller hospital, 
rural area in the Midwest, the northern Midwest. The state will remain nameless and his name will remain nameless just to protect the innocent and his contract, I think. But he's told by email that, that that at the end of the month, OB services, inpatient OB services at the hospital are going to stop. Nobody's come down to see him. He hasn't gotten a call from administration. He hasn't gotten anything. And now he's stuck with a community that believes it has a service, an OB guy who's got to move out of town to go to another hospital. There's been nothing set up. Rick, let's talk for just a minute about the potential medical legal liabilities here. I mean, he's on the phone with me for a pretty good reason. And that is he wants to know how to proceed, what to do, how how his people are going to react to this. I mean, you got any thoughts off the top of your head? I think about getting a new job is what I think about. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not an option, Rick. Some of us have to play with the, the cards we've been dealt. He's been dealt this situation. Now, come on. I gave him some advice, but I want to hear what you've got to say. Well, not having OB is bad. Not having ENT is bad. Not having neurosurgery is bad. We're, we're all basically um, challenged to have all of the specialties that we need, particularly in those settings where there is a, a potential life involved. You know, somebody could exsanguinate from a no- nosebleed and uh, you, you need an ENT doctor. Obviously, there's big risks in uh, a pregnancy, absolutely. And um, so I think that there's some kind of obligation for uh, transfer agreements to be set up, uh, for the community to be advised that the hospital is no longer providing the service so that people don't kind of uh, decide to go to the hospital and find out oh, the, the OB service closed about two months ago. So I think there's a variety of things that are required on the part of the hospital to advise this community and the transfer setups need to be done. Well, listen, I'll tell you right now that uh, the reason I asked you before I said what I told him uh, is exactly, you and I have hit exactly some of these points. Number one, this hospital has an obligation to this area to inform people widely, church groups, Doc, private doctor's offices, family practice, et cetera, et cetera, that as of this date, if you have a problem, don't come to the hospital. You head up the road 30 miles to the place that can deal with the problem. Uh, secondly, I told him to send a letter uh, to the administration of the hospital and the board of the hospital saying, okay, since we don't have this now, What do you want us to do? What is going to be the protocol? What are the transfer agreements that we've set up? Because you know what's going to happen the first week. Some woman in labor is going to show up, and now he's got to be calling around, finding a place for this person to go. So he wants to make sure that he's covered himself and his group by putting these questions up on the table in advance. Uh, You know, everybody always acts at a hospital when a strange case comes in like it's a surprise. No, it's not a surprise. It's going to come in as sure as shooting. Somebody's going to come in there with bleeding. And it's not just a pregnancy question or it's not just a uh, a, a standard known pregnancy question. Somebody's going to come in with an ectopic. 
are the general surgeons now going to handle that? Because they certainly have and certainly do in some places. What's going to go on with all of these various situations? And I told him to also send a copy of everything, the letters, to his insurance carrier. Because at some point in time, they've got to understand the situation that they're stepping into. And and I think that this is... Um, you know, I think we're going to see more and more of this around the country. Units which are not producing adequately. And most people now say if your OB unit doesn't deliver 600 kids a year, you shouldn't be doing it at all. And I don't disagree with that. But we have to have some logical way of covering the doctors, the community, the patients. Somebody's got to cover these situations. This community probably doesn't have 600 people in it, no less 600 deliveries uh, <laughs> well, a year. See, that's that's the problem. But of course, what happened is they looked at their at their revenues and said th- they've got less than one woman a day. In fact, it works out to 0.3 women a day in labor in the hospital. Uh, and at that kind of, at that kind of number, that means you're delivering uh, a kid every three or four days. You know what? Those kind of numbers, you shouldn't be delivering anybody at all because it's very hard to keep keep good at something with those kind of numbers. Although you have to acknowledge that there are a lot of little hospitals around the country, people living out in rural areas. We call this Darwinian triage. If you choose to live in a place that has no medical facilities worth talking about, you need to be willing to take the consequences uh, of this kind of thing. The other thing that's coming up, Greg, and you um, and I have talked about this in the past is the more recent Mtaler uh, regulations have allowed hospitals to um, have call done in groups so that there may be one doctor who's on call for two, three, or four hospitals. And particularly when those hospitals are all owned by the same company, it makes a very logical approach to this problem rather than having one doctor for each little, little hospital. Uh, so that may be an option for them to consider if there are other hospitals in the community. I'll tell you one important factor, which uh, which I asked him about, and he said nobody's thought anything about it yet, is they haven't we worked with the uh, various fire departments, uh, EMS providers in the area, so that they all know what they're going to do with certain cases. Because you, you and I all know that this happens. Uh, they pick up somebody with a particular problem. They have to know which hospital is really a choice for them. And that kind of decision-making can make a lot of difference in, in the life of a, of a uh, child is about to be born if there's any problems with the delivery. And I think that we uh, kind of need to keep these things in mind. I mean, this is, this is going to be a, um, this is going to be a tough transition, I think. And uh, until everybody knows what's happening, I, I'm sure there's going to be some sticky problems. Well, it sounds like this hospital administration needs to get on the ball. They've got some homework to do here, which doesn't sound like it's been done. And in the process are exposing themselves, the emergency physicians and the community to some uh, substantial potential liability and risk here. So let's review a couple of things on this case. I'm sure, uh, sorry, Mel isn't here to say, Greg, are you saying that? Yes, (laughs) I am saying this. Number one, uh, there needs to be a paper trail. Number uh, that uh, now it's an email trail, but whatever it is, 
that establishes that you as the emergency docs have recognized the problem and are working on the problem and are trying to find reasonable community solutions to this problem. And I think that that, uh, paper trail, getting people together quickly, deciding what the answer is, is uh, only fair to everyone involved. Uh, while we're on the, the, the subject of paper trails, uh, yesterday was a busy day. I get a phone call from a uh, young woman who will also remain nameless who says, my God, my group is, is fighting with the hospital. The hospital thinks they're now going to take us on as employees. They haven't finished the discussions. And she said, the director of my group has said, well, we just may not show up. I thought, oh, my God, my heart sank. I thought, first of all, um, this is a reasonable-sized hospital. Uh, They'd have 10 groups in there making a request for proposal on that contract uh, before the ink was dry on the line. I said, "This this is just nuts. You you can't be threatening not to show up. And I asked, did they did they issue a schedule for next month for July? So yeah, yeah, and we're on it. I said the implied contract exists between you and the institution. They believe you're going to be there. You believe you're going to be there. I said I would send out a letter, make sure my insurance carrier understands this, hospital understands this. But I but but this is. This is the craziest thing I've ever heard to use not showing up as a negotiation tool with administration. I, I, I think that if you ever want to see your, your contract disappear in a nanosecond, that would be the way to do it. Well, that group has to be a, a, a constructed of a bunch of idiots. Having a contract is very, very, very valuable. And to tell you the truth, Greg, there I think there's more and more hospitals switching over to um, employee status versus independent contractors. And you know there is the potential if that happens that you might have some decrease in your income because obviously they don't want to pay you what you might have been getting now. But 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 there are some other issues on the other side of the uh, ledger here. With electronic medical records uh, so that you can see about 0.8 patients per hour, it would be great to be an employee and uh, not have to worry about being an independent contractor and trying to live off of 0.8 patients an hour as you generate 20 pages of uh, useless uh, I won't Crap. I, I, yes. I, yeah, thank you very much, Gregory. <laughs> I, I could count on you to do that. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of hospitals are being challenged by throughput issues because they have this obsession for electronic medical records, which results in obviously a decrease in um, productivity, particularly when you're doing histories and physicals. I, you know, maybe it's not affected by uh, CPOE, but. Uh, if you're not b- being able to do quick history and physical progress notes, medical decision, those kinds of things, I think that's uh, that's that's an issue. So the idea is is that it's not necessarily bad to be an employee. Uh, employees can't get fired. They have to. Uh, they have all of these rights. Independent contractors basically have no rights, kind of thing. So it's not necessarily bad, depending on what the um, what the financial arrangement is. By the way, I just got back a few days ago from uh, I was a visiting lecturer for the Dutch Society of Emergency Medicine. What do you think they're bitching about, Rick? 
Wooden shoes. <laughs> yeah, wooden shoes. Uh, no, wooden electronic re- medical records is the real problem. And uh, and uh, everybody, it's like it's worldwide now. People have decided that nobody's going to be efficient. The healthcare is going to cost a fortune. Nothing. Nobody's got just two bit disease that can be diagnosed quickly and out of there. It's uh, this thing is becoming a an international nightmare, and it's good to kind of keep those things in mind. So while we're while we're doing this, and before uh, let's let's do some cases or some updates here. Well, wait, there's wait, a case. I, let, let me divert a little, little, little bit uh, okay. on this. Um, not that we've covered it. Uh, inadequately in the past but i went i saw an er recently and um they said oh yeah yeah yeah, we're computerized we had uh, computers all over the place it's really cool and, and doctor i asked the doctor you like this thing i said it's it's it, he says not bad at all well the fact of the matter is what he had on his uh, electronic medical record was all of the prior ekgs and operator reports and those kinds of things were on the record and it could do uh computer order entry well, I said, well, how do you do history and physical? He says, oh, no, we dictate those, and they go to India, and they're back in 20 minutes. So that's not an electronic medical record, uh, buddies. So if you think that that's what, what it is, no thank you, sir. These are the, the, the real electronic medical records, basically. You do not allow substantial real-time dictation. Even if you're using something like the Kurzweil system, uh, there, there are some issues, at least. So let's move on. That's my last. I won't say anything more about my my one of my favorite <laughs> topics. The uh, well, what, I want to go back what, to the quill and pen. Yeah, the- what you've just talked about is the way the system ought to work. Use technology for what technology is good for. You know, getting a ten minute reading from radiology that that's what electronics is for. Uh, being able to free dictate history and physical. Believe me. There is no uh, internal medicine doc, orthopedist, anybody who wants to get a checkbox chart in their box. They don't. They like two paragraphs, well-written, it works. All right. Uh, We're going to get on to a potpourri of cases uh, this month. This is what we've got for you. And the first one goes back to an issue. I knew there'd be another case out there sooner or later, and here it is, a a $1.1 million Kentucky verdict in a death of an infant after suffering a some sort of prolapse of the of the cord, the umbilical cord. Um, the facts of the case are not as important as this fact. The judge set the verdict aside when he found out one of the jurors was talking about the case on Facebook. Oh, geez. Uh, uh, <laughs> Let me. I just got to read this to you, Rick, because it's and and people think, oh, Greg, that kind of stuff can't be real. You're making it. No, no. I can cite you the case here. And what happened was we had a Dr. Edens, uh, and this is a completed case. I, I mean, this is public record. We can use his name. Uh, he's the OB guy. Um, he gets a call from the nurse. Patient came in in labor. Goes up to labor. Now the the vital signs are crashing. He gets called in. He's at the hospital. It looks like 10 or 15 minutes later. And this is the number that blows me away. They are cutting on this woman's abdomen 22 minutes after he arrives. How many places could actually do that, Rick? 22 
two minutes. Pretty quick. Yeah, pretty quick. It's unbelievable. And now, and now, of course, they're claiming, well, he took too much time. It was delayed. It was this or it was that. Well, everything gets processed through. There's a lot of crap about did the nurse actually convey to the doctor the first time she saw vital signs going down, et cetera, et cetera. In any event, the jury came back with a $1,183,000 award uh, for this uh, couple, and their child did die um, after a few weeks in the hospital. Uh, But it uh, it came to the attention during the trial that the hospital sought a new trial, filed a motion right at the end, right at the time of this jury, because one of the uh, jurors had a Facebook posting uh, in which she said, I'm on a jury, God help me, to which a friend replied, they're guilty. Whatever it is, they're guilty. The juror then sent back a reply, quote, unquote, starting to feel that way myself, and so now what we have is the, the hospital saying this juror was prejudiced by discussions they should never have been having. Um, and what happened was the judge took one look at this, set the verdict aside and said, you know what? This is a tainted jury. Uh, and if you want to go back, you can try it again. Mm-hmm. Now, it hasn't been tried again. I don't know what trying it again is, is going to produce, but I think it's interesting that, again, the social media is now starting to creep into what we do. The, there, there are valuable lessons here. You don't talk about any of this stuff. You don't talk about patients. You don't talk about diseases. You don't talk about the administration. You don't put anything out there because even Bill Gates couldn't get rid of email uh, or, or Facebook stuff. It, it just doesn't happen. Uh, so uh, be careful. Yeah, actually, it's an a unusual case, probably more of it going to happen. It, you would think that uh, juries would be instructed in these matters um, very clearly at the beginning of a trial. The other thing, Greg, is um, you mentioned the child died. I, um, I kind of was of the view that if uh, a person died... Why would they, uh, the family get a million dollars? Um, because uh, well, there's no lifelong care issues. There's no, um, you know, it, it had to be strictly related to punitive damages or something to that effect. Because I, I was of the view that um, it was hard to get money if a child died uh, because of lifelong learning uh, or earning issues that are, aren't there. Uh, am I wrong? Well, at least in this case and in this state, uh, they were willing to come back with non-economic damages. I mean, obviously, some of this stuff had to do with the costs of of caring for the infant during that period of time. They have a perfect right to sue for that. But um, they could also award, and they did in this case, awarded a damage um, which which had to the emotional state of the parents um, uh, for what went on. So so it's not a black and white issue. I think I think it varies 
maybe state to state and, and certainly case to case, there can be some adjustments there and it's, uh, it's not easy. Let me point out I was involved in one other case uh, where, uh, and this was in a conservative uh, town in Pennsylvania, uh, a crusty old Republican judge who uh, about the day I'm going to go on to the stand, the judge sends everybody, uh, clears the courtroom, except for the parties involved. And um, since I was about to testify, I'm left on the stand. The judge had been given a note by one of the jurors that a family member of the, the plaintiff's family had contacted her and asked her to be her Facebook friend. Um, it's a good thing there wasn't a seismograph in that room because the judge went back after them and he took plaintiff's counsel and co-counsel and just ripped the hide off of them and said if he could prove that they had any knowledge of this, he would go to the state bar about their licenses. Um, You know, we, I think people have to take this stuff seriously. Uh, This is uh, this sort of, kibitzing, uh, talking back and forth electronically, uh, nobody's going to put up with that kind of stuff if they find out about it. It will hurt anybody's case. Well, the problem is is that, you know, laymen don't know these kinds of things. They need to be told, and I think that uh, there's some responsibility on the part of the judge at the beginning of a trial to say, here are the rules, gentlemen and ladies, and uh, now getting involved in these mass media um, products is part of the rules and they need to be told but I don't think that people would necessarily intuit these things um, as reflected in the two examples you just gave yeah I, I well my understanding is Rick that now most judges do inform and do pass on information I guess it's the kind of thing that, that for years we thought yeah they shouldn't have any contact that ought to be obvious but uh, now it's, it's going to be stated uh, pretty much outright that you don't do this. And by the way, the, uh, the caveat to doctors listening is don't you be emailing, talking to anybody, uh, sending poison pen emails to the family, any of that kind of stuff. It's just not right. Stay away from it. Stay out of it. It's, it's not good. I got it. All right. Want another case? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, the state of Utah brings us this one, and I'm not going to tell you the result just yet, except we've got a five-year-old who's crying, screaming. What's he got? He's got a bug in his ear. Doctor decides to remove the bug with a, an instrument, but without sedation. What do you think happened, Rick? He punctured the eardrum, and all these little bones came out that looked like staples and that, and uh, anchors and sta- and and, ang- and an- anvils and things like that. Yeah, that, staples. I thought that was a place we got our office supplies now, but you're right. They, uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, the, he did get a perforation of the eardrum. The question is: the question was, did the technique follow the reasonable standard of care? Uh, the child, by the way, did have a reasonable result. And the one thing about the legal system is it's so damn slow <laughs> is that is that uh, a- a- this took place. Uh, the injury took place in 2005. 
and now we're getting a, a case resolved in 2000. This actually was resolved at the end of 2011. Uh, that's how quick things are. We are actually able to find out that the kid's hearing is okay. Now, the, the questions involved in the case are not just did something happen, that was there an untoward re- reaction here, but is it usual and customary that we, we remove foreign bodies? The answer is no, we, uh, yes, it, is no, it, the, it, it's the custom to leave all foreign bodies in place uh, indefinitely. That is, uh, yeah. actually, <laughs> what, in this case, Greg, I would have blamed the in- insect. The insect ate a hole in the drum. It wasn't the doctor's fault. It was the insect's fault for crying Rick, out loud. Rick, you've picked out what one of the one of the people said. In fact, they had an ENT doctor who said, well, it could have been the instrument or it could have been the bug, uh, and uh, which is amazing to me. But he actually gave that testimony. Uh, I've never seen an insect eat an eardrum, but I don't know. Uh, maybe it could. Maybe it's a very aggressive insect. I have no idea. The point is, they, they asked the jury, basically, did he, the first question always is, were the actions taken, taken by the doctor, did they fall into the standard of care for an emergency doc at this point in time? And uh, then they have to decide about damages later. First question is, did it meet the standard of care? Because if it meets the standard of care, are irrelevant. If it doesn't, then damages are everything. But the jury came back in this case and said, well, there was a bad out- something bad happened, which it seemed to repair itself. But the testimony was such that emergency doctors appeared who said under oath that, yes, they would try to remove the uh, move the uh, foreign body. And, yes, they've had small amounts of bleeding in the past. And uh, who amongst us has not had in the past? a small amount of bleeding when removing wax, foreign body, or something from an eardrum. Ricky, stick up your hand. I know this has happened to you. Yes, it has. Yes. But I guess the issue is is that uh, was what the doctor did out of line, and it doesn't sound that way. I mean, typically you're supposed to drown these little suckers and kill them, and then just uh, there's no fighting, and it's easier to remove them, and you can even wash them out after you've put this glycerin or whatever else you want to put in there, gasoline or um, uh, lighter fluid or whatever. No, actually, I'm don't. I was trying to be funny. Please, yeah, I, I, don't, yeah, put, yeah, I, don't put yeah, lighter yeah. fluid in the kid's ear. Yeah, but it, and and don't have anybody write in, right? And and give us crap. Okay, next case. Um, and this is a case you're going to love because it involves not one CT scan of the abdomen, but two. The more the merrier. The more the merrier. It's a failure to diagnose. But, you know, all the docs who, who who write in, call in, find me at meetings, say, oh, God, we lost that. And we did this. And I can't believe they paid money on that. You'll like the outcome of this case. This is a failure to diagnose appendicitis in a man with abdominal pain. Uh, the guy is 40 years of age goes into a New York hospital, uh, state of New York, not city of New York, goes into a New York hospital. This is December of 2007. Uh, he has abdominal pain. Uh, the doctor who watches him in the emergency department, they watch him over about a seven-hour period of time. 
they do a CT scan. CT scan, read by radiology and available to the emergency doc, says uh, impossible to be 100% sure, of course, it's the hedge, but no inflammation noted at this time. Page was given some painkillers, sent home, and told, here's the saving part of this case, which ran this case to a, to a uh, and this is in the state of New York, which is a notoriously de- tough venue for us, to give us a no-cause verdict. The ED doc had said, if you're still having pain, come back. Well, he did have pain the next day, except he doesn't come back. He comes back two days later. At that time, they do another CT scan. They see what? A small abscess around the appendix. They drain him. He does have a few problems following that, but the family then brings action saying, oh no, despite the normal CT scan, despite the fact this, that, and another thing that he's awake, alert, intelligent, and feeling okay, you should have admitted him and they should have had, they should have had the uh, appendix out. So, uh, so what happens is the jury comes back and says, nah, he was told if he, uh, if he actually had pain, uh, he should come immediately back to the emergency department and he didn't do it. So this reiterates our idea about short interval follow-up come back here you're either normal or here and that saved this that that saved this guy and there was uh, no payment uh based on this missed appendix well that's cool uh, i think it's important for all emergency physicians to recognize and, and this is i guess pretty obvious that none of these tests are 100 percent um i've kind of been a student of the ct and appendicitis and i think the best numbers actually are about 95% sensitivity, which means you're going to miss one in 20. So you can certainly not say, uh, just because the CT is negative, that that's not the problem when you have other kinds of things to go on, like the physical exam, the the history, the progression of the problem. So uh, I think that people need to be aware of this. Uh, I think every emergency physician does, but we've gotten so dependent on this technology and we think it's so good that um, I guess we can delude ourselves. Fortunately, this doctor, you know, said the right thing about coming back. You know, my mantra, it's either going to get better, get worse, or it's going to stay the same. And if it gets worse in any way, and I don't, I don't want to list 25 ways it can get worse. I just want to tell them, worse in any way, you come back here to this emergency department. Don't call your family doctor. Don't try to get an appointment. No, come right back to this emergency department. Yeah, and I think that, uh, by the way, noticing the names, uh, as I always do on these cases, is who the experts are. Um, The usual suspects show up who are giving testimony against the emergency docs. You know, this guy did everything right. It's, it's, and, and, you know, he won the case. That's good. I bet there were sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 in uh, defense costs in this thing. We ought to be able to go back after defense costs in some of these cases this is just this is just crazy stuff and uh it uh, it it makes me unhappy but uh anyway there's some thoughts you ready for another case yeah let me have it all right this is a this is a case that uh, is not necessarily emergency medicine except for the first 
five, ten minutes of the case. But it has an interesting uh, nuance, which absolutely reflects us. And this is symptoms of man's brain herniation, not properly conveyed to neurosurgeons leading to death. This is a $10 million verdict on the issue of survival damages. Um, and by the way, uh, there was a second trial had to take place in this case, and we'll talk about it for a second. A man who was, uh, uh, was at a, a hospital actually in West Virginia, vomiting, headache, was admitted to a hospital there where a CT scan and MRI of the brain revealed a large swelling mass in the brain. Is this ever a good thing, Rick? Not good. No. 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 <laughs> let's, let's just say right now, my law is if you really need a neurosurgeon, it ain't a good thing. It's, it, it's not like needing a dermatologist. Uh, the patient, uh, 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 so he was transferred to a major hospital. Three days after admittance at this major hospital, um, in the evening, of course, the uh, patient seems to be getting slightly worse. The plaintiff's family claimed that that the night nurse um, was somewhat delayed in notifying the neurosurgeon <clears throat> who failed to intervene, according to them, to prevent the death. The nurse documented, and this is her documentation, that the decedent's right pupil, when she called the uh, neurosurgeon, was fixed and dilated, and that was around 1.05 in the morning. Allegedly, uh, put forward here by her testimony, supported by the chart, but the neurosurgeon claims this at, when he deposed and at the time of trial. The nurse only reported a sluggish pupil. That's the way he remembered the discussion. Details, details. So, well, see, now what you have is this. You have two healthcare professionals pissing on each other. And when you have a jury sitting there, who are they supposed to believe? More than that, do they care? They just don't care at that point in time. Now you're fighting over something which should never have been fought about in public. And uh, the nurse... She's got one thing the doctor doesn't have, a record made contemporaneously with the event that said fixed pupil. This is not, a, I, again, I don't know many things that, that that's a good thing for. Um, and here was the claim of plaintiff. And, and I want you to kind of put this through the uh, situation because the, you'd like to think, well, it's the neurosurgeon's fault. He ought to pay the money. No. Uh, for lots of reasons. First of all, he doesn't have that much money. So they want to involve the hospital. And this is the theory of law, which they use to keep the hospital in the case. And that is the nurse had protocols that if the doctor did not respond, because they asked her this question, well, what do you think the doctor should have done when you first called him? And of course, her testimony is he should have come right in. Well, I can agree with that, but he didn't. So now what we know is the nurse thinks he needed immediate intervention. Well, they said what she didn't do was notify the chief of staff. She didn't notify the head of his department. She did not notify the head of nursing or the, the nursing supervisor on that night. What she failed to do was follow, and this is the phrase from the case, nursing 
chain of command as to what they would have done. By the way, they also got her in the um, in in deposition to say something which always buries us, and that is, nurse so and so, if it was your child, what would you have done? And you know what? Most of us don't lie well, uh, and and she uh, she immediately said, well. Yeah, I would have gotten another doctor in. I would have done this or that. Thank you, nurse. No more questions. So this to do with following the chain of command, uh, not just that there was a bad outcome and not that there's just a discrepancy between the doctor and the nurse, but the plaintiff brilliantly wanted to keep the hospital and the hospital's money in play on this case. Yeah, you always got to go for the deep pockets there. And um you know, actually, cases where you have $1 million and $3 million aggregate, you, you know, out here, there was a big move to uh, in a large hospital change, which will go uh, chain that will go unnamed to require the emergency physicians to have something like two five or uh, and there was a big hullabaloo about that because it would raise the premiums of the emergency physicians and they were of the view that um, the system mandating that kind of level of payment was uh, atypically large in terms of insurance and um, I think that they all ultimately backed down but there was a move uh, um, to get emergency physicians to carry more insurance than the rest of the medical staff. Let me, uh, while we're talking about cases, I, I, I want to present a problem which most everybody listening to this recording is an experienced physician. We've all been through the era, and Rick, you and I, really old guys like you and I, remember locum tenens work, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's still out there. I mean, there are all kinds of ads. Show up here, do 24 hours, leave, pick up your money. Well, you realize those were the days when what we had was a handwritten chart. I've got a case going now on a locum tenens docker, which has to do with him showing up not knowing the electronic system, not being able to access this, that, or another thing. And literally, this was one of those things where he drove up, took over from the doc who was leaving on 12-hour shift, was told, uh, this, there's the computer, there's the bathroom, there's the cafeteria, and I'm out of here. So now he's working he doesn't know how to access the old x-rays, the old laboratory studies, all this other stuff. The nurses are saying, well, we don't actually do that. We're not quite sure how you do this. And there were important things in that previous, in those previous visits that he should have known in making the decisions on a particular case. So I, I'm, what I'm adding here is a wrinkle, a medical legal wrinkle to the question of having locum tenens physicians. People ride in, do their thing, and ride out as if no preparation is needed to understand what's going on. Are you aware of any of these cases, Rick? Hey, you're blaming the wrong guy there. Don't blame the doctor. Blame the uh, hospital's electronic medical record. Come on. You've got to be <laughs> consistent here. Yeah, I understand <laughs> that. the invention of the devil. <laughs> Well, it is the invention of the devil, but I, but I want to make sure that, that everybody understands that whenever you've got one of these um, transit, the, these uh, companies that will supply a doc, ask this question. 
does he have to put down which systems he's familiar with and which ones he's fluent with? If you talk to the docs at most hospitals, they had a transition time in which the damn place almost stopped the day they started those systems because there was a learning curve in these sorts of things. Uh, you, you know, when, when you hire computer people now, they list the 10 or 12 or 15 types of systems they're excellent at. Uh, why? Because everybody knows there's a learning curve and it does make a difference. I think we're going to see that in medicine. Maybe I'm wrong here, but I mean, everybody checks to see if you have something really useless like a, a current ACLS card or ATLS card or something or something else equally as useless. No, I don't think I know of anybody who checks to see, are you familiar with X, Y, or Z system? Can you use it? Do you know our hospital's modifications? Um, I think there's going to be some serious problems here, Rick, and, and uh, it's, it's just starting because once we get a case that's litigated, this will spread like wildfire through the legal community. Well, I'm an expert on a thing called paper and the <laughs> big pen and uh, dictation. Those are my uh, – that's the uh, three uh, elements that I'm really, really, really good at. And I wouldn't be able to work in an emergency department uh, with any of these kinds of things. And you've made a very, very good point. And I've, I don't think we've ever talked about that before. The idea of doctors not being familiar with the hospital's computer system. And what kind of obligation is incurred by both the hospital and the medical group, the physician group, in terms of making sure that the doctors who practice in these facilities know how to use these inventions of the devil? Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, it seems logical to me. If you're a machinist uh, and you go to get a job, they'll ask, are you familiar with NCR? Have you ever used a Bridgeport mill? Have you ever done these sorts of things? Those seem like logical questions to me that we would have similar kind of questions for docs. But, but uh, stay tuned on this one. I think that if I was a plaintiff's counsel, I would be very interested in in pursuing that line of questioning uh, when when they've missed something that was in a previous set of X-rays or in a in a previous uh, visit to the department. Interesting stuff. I would agree with you. I think it's a whole new line of opportunities for plaintiffs attorneys, uh, especially as the world is transitioning into these inventions of the devil. Yep. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> just in case anybody's it, missing the point we're making here. Uh, all right. I, I want to get to something which is uh, one of, I told you we had great cases, Rick. I mean, now, these remember, are, listen here, chief. I got, we also got three uh, letters that we also want to cover, but we do, we're, we have plenty of time. So give me another one. All right. Let me hit you with this one. You're going to like. Failure to provide adequate warning regarding risks of Achilles tendon rupture for people taking what med, Rick? Jeez, let me guess. Actually, um, <laughs> Greg, you and I both write for EP Monthly. Yes. And um, in the last three columns I did, in fact, I think the, mo the one I did most recently, which is probably not even out there yet, was on uh, the quinolones. And uh, one of the things I really, really like about the quinolone stuff is that it's black boxed so that the issue will be um doctor was there another alternative 
antibiotic that you could have used to treat this person's bronchitis, given the fact that none of them matter? And the answer is, oh, yeah, I could have used uh, amoxicillin or something like that. And yet the quinolones are so popular that um, I think there's going to be lots and lots of opportunities. First of all, I know that um, there's a lot of cases. The first case historically was actually by um, a fellow who was about uh, in his um, late 70s who was given the prescription for um, levofloxacin and um, steroids for his, what, diagnosis? Bronchitis. <laughs> yes, and of three course. months later, both of his Achilles tendons are ruptured. Both. Congratulations, sir. And uh, he doesn't do well. I mean, they didn't stitch him up very well. They, they, and, the, and so he basically sued. Um, uh, I, wanna, I don't want to get their name wrong. It was one of the major drug companies, I think, it, but I won't, I won't mention the name because I'm not sure. But it was $1.8 million. And obviously, well, Levi- Leviquin was the drug in this case, Rick. Right. And, and we don't, and, don't and say Leviquin, Greg. Greg. It's Greg. produced don't by Johnson that. and Johnson. Don't say Leviquin, Greg. Say Levofloxacin. Levofloxacin. Yes. Okay. Use the generic but this was here. the Levofloxacin produced by Johnson and Johnson because they were also a defendant in the case. And of course, they immediately. Plaintiff pointed out, it, it, it's it's amazing. You have you, you're like the great Kreskin, remember? Or uh, uh, you haven't read any of these things? They've been sealed on Funk and Wagnall's porch. Uh, in but a mayonnaise have, jar. A mayonnaise jar, yes. And and they have uh, they point out in the lawsuit the black box warning. Now in medicine, we sort of foo foo the black box warning because a lot of them are ridiculous, and a lot of them don't meet uh, statistical criteria, the, the droperidol warning being the obvious one. But uh, it, it's hard to believe how many suits there are. And what they're saying right now, there are 2,600 suits uh, involving failure to warn linking Leviquin and tendonitis. Don't say that, Leviquin. Come on. Gonna, uh, John, McNeil's going to come after you. Levofloxacin, doctor. Levofloxacin and 2,600. Now, what that means is if you look at the number of emergency departments in the United States, that averages uh, one in in every two departments has gotten sued on this. Now, it's more than just emergency departments, obviously. But uh, it's interesting to note uh, I was shocked when I read the 2,600 suit number. No, actually, it's interesting. In association with the landmark suit for this fellow who got the 1.8, at that time there were 1,600 suits pending. And the issue was that the drug company uh, was thought to inadequately have warned clinicians regarding this matter. However, since that time, there's been a black box on it. Every doctor in, the, in America got a letter on, on uh, this, this risk. The FDA has mandated that pharmacists, when they dispense any of the quinolones, that there is a fact sheet given to them, the contents of which have been mandated by the FDA, uh, warning people about this problem. And so uh, it, uh, I have been writing for actually a couple of years now saying I'm waiting for the suits t- 
to go to the physicians because clearly now this is a physician issue. The drug company has done plenty of marketing to tell people that there is a problem here. The black box is there. And if you willy-nilly choose this antibiotic for um, some indication where another one could have been used and there's a problem, um, 90% of these uh, injuries involve the Achilles tendon, and 40% of them involve rupture of the Achilles tendon. I think it must be something to do with gravity. When you take this pill while you're standing up, it goes down to your legs and <laughs> takes out those ten tendons. I think, it, I, do, I think it's related to gravity. But in any case, I think physicians have to be very, very, very careful about this, and I got to believe that there are going to be lawsuits not directed at the drug company anymore, but uh, directed at physicians who have failed to take reasonable care and have uh, given out this drug uh, in a uh, casual manner, and patients are going to suffer for that, from this. By the way, uh, this the drug in this case was given for <laughs> mild sinusitis, uh, which in 95% of cases probably does antibiotic anyway. And of course, that literature made it into the trial as well. Um, do you want another appendix case, Rick? Uh, let's see here, Greg. We have about uh, 20 minutes maximum, so uh, it's, it's your call. All right, let's, wiki let's appendix. Give us the, wiki appendix. Give us the, the, the key points here. Okay, failure to diagnose appendicitis again, and, and here's my prejudice. If you're a young male and you got pain in the right lower quadrant, just take the damn thing out. It's a safe. It's a th safe thing to do, and it uh, costs uh, almost no money. And uh, we're right most of the time. And uh, there's almost nothing that goes wrong with it. And then you can join the space program because you don't have an appendix. But uh, the, the patient goes home, and of course he sues because they didn't make the diagnosis that thing. But the patient had refused an imaging study. The emergency doc was going to do a study on the guy. And you're right. We maybe we missed five. Some people would say seven percent, but it, everything came down. And, and he's in this kid, by the way, is I think uh, he's 25 years of age. I mean, what else does a kid that age have but appendicitis? Uh, but again, it's the idea of what, where things were happening and how it was documented. Fortunately, in this case, and I would point out, this is a Virginia defense verdict. Uh, that they had properly documented that they'd offered the test and he'd refused. This is the against medical advice. This is the uh, it, not warning them about, this is warning them properly that we've argued care. You're, you're awake, alert, normal, and you're refusing that care. And that was the deciding point in this case. He knew or should have known the case, the test was offered. Um, the patient was told to come back the next morning. He didn't. He waited two more days. I mean, this is a case, again, where we prevailed because if he'd been, I'm sure this doctor listens to risk management monthly and he did it right. Well, you know, I think uh, it does come up when patients decline either certain treatments or certain um elements of care, but they're not signing out. They just don't want a spinal tap kind of thing. I do think there is this obligation when they decline a specific test or to that, uh, that we say, listen, 
Uh, we understand you're concerned about this test. Uh, you should know, however, that in the case of CAT scans, they're about 95% ac- uh, accurate. So I think that, that you need to kind of l- let the patients know the risks and benefits of not doing a test rather than saying, okay, the patient doesn't want a spinal tap or, okay, the patient doesn't want a CT. I do think there is this obligation to advise them of the importance of the test that you're recommending with the risks and benefits associated with it, just as you would do if a person's being discharged against medical advice. Uh, as a side uh, note in this case, the, it wasn't in an emergency department because they'd asked to transfer this patient to an emergency department. It was one of their uh, freestanding urgent cares. Uh, and the uh, a doc said, what I need to do is send you to the hospital. He refused to go, refused to have the study. Uh, we don't talk much on this program yet about urgent care cases. And we're going to have to start doing it because... I know that no major organization in medicine wants to spend a lot of time talking about urgent care. We've treated them like they're a non-existent, ugly stepchild. Well, grow up. There's more care being given out these days in, in urgent cares, and there's more care being given out by physician associates, uh, mid-levels, extenders, whatever term is politically correct at this moment. And uh, we're going to have to start, uh, as a medical organization, uh, start addressing some of these things because because the world is changing, the financing is changing, and just hospital-based emergency departments are not going to be the only place where health care is given. Oh, by no means. And... um the fees in emergency departments are such that uh, there's serious raping and pillaging going on. Um, but I just wrote a column for EP Monthly based on a, a story in the LA Times written by Steve Lopez focusing on the absurdity of hospital charges. And um, so watch for that. They're hey, a listen, fiction. Let's get to uh, some of these letters, Chief. Um, oh, we, we, yeah, we need we need to do uh, some more letters because because these are uh, these are loyal people who've been writing to us. You do uh, do uh, Doctor Wise's letter there. It's that's yeah, Robert good... Wise is a uh, doctor who has uh, written us. He's an assistant coach of a little league team, and uh, one of the kids who were pitching basically wound up stopping because he was having a lot of pain in his shoulder, and so Doctor Wise goes on to the uh, uh, internet, does some study, and he determines that actually what this kid has is something I've never heard of, proximal humeral epiphysitis, Mm -hmm. or it could have been apophysitis, one of those things, some kind of ascitis. Where you put the emphasis. It depends where you put the emphasis, Rick. Go ahead. He emailed the parents stressing the fact that this kid needs a pediatric ortho consult and not to let him pitch. He also sent a note to the manager advising him of his concerns regarding the child. The manager said uh, he will defer to the parents, and of course the parents kept him playing. So he wants to know uh, where does he stand in this situation. You and I both answered him, and I think we basically said, listen, you've done all that you could reasonably do. Uh, You can lead a horse to water. This is not going down the child abuse path kind of thing, and that... uh, I think the only additional thing that you and I recommended is that he keeps some kind of personal file on the communications that he uh, sent to the parents 
and to the um, manager of the team making his recommendations, but that honestly he couldn't do a lot more than that. And he, and uh, where do you stand on that, Greg? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, first of all, you need to be very specific what your role is at any one moment in time. Uh, you and I both know that you can't be both the parent and the doctor <laughs> or the parent and the husband, uh, this kind of thing. Uh, you, you've got to decide what your role is. He's working as an assistant little league coach. All he can do is give his opinion. He has not been asked to see the child. He, the parents have not consulted him uh, giving out medical advice. He's given them his best off-the-cuff advice whether they decide to take it or not is their opinion. Let me tell you who, however, has some problem here. He sent a letter to the manager of the league advising him of his concerns. If this kid goes on to other problems without being cleared, the parents may have some action against that league. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not against the do- not against this uh, assistant coach who happens to be a doctor, but the league has been advised by a physician that this may need further checking. I would be very careful about that. And the place where this is biggest in the country is not baseball; it's in soccer, it's in football, where they get concussions. And if you haven't been following it. The National Football League is right now being sued for a zillion kazillion dollars over the fact that that a lot of these uh, concussions the people have had could have been taken care of by somebody else. Right. I saw that on TV yesterday. Uh, It was something like 2,000 ex-football players are involved in this uh, class action suit against the NFL. Um, there is a lot being written about concussions recently. Unfortunately, the science behind this is kind of murky, but I think emergency physicians, to the extent that they volunteer in uh, high school football or anything to that effect, need to be very, very, very conservative in these cases. These kids cannot go back into the game. These kids need to go to somebody who understands that they need to, pro- uh, to be uh, progressively increased in terms of their uh, physical activities, and if there's any um, <clears throat> regression uh, in terms of the symptoms that they have, they need to stop. There's a whole um, set of kinds of things people need to know about how to handle concussed kids, which I think, honestly, most people necessarily don't know, and everybody wants to get them back into the game, and this thing, and, and there's a lot more coming out about the seriousness of this, this uh, problem. People who are seriously into athletic injuries uh, are are very conservative about this. You notice now the uh, National Hockey League has these guys go into the dressing room. They have a physician there who administers the psychological tests, which were given to them, performance tests, before the season even started to see how they do. And if it isn't per, it isn't if it isn't right there in line. Um, they ain't playing for a while. And I, and I think that we've, we've acquiesced to sometimes parents who are a little anxious to get their kid in the game kind of thing. No, that isn't necessarily the right thing to do. And I think that, uh, 
I, th- I think that we got to kind of keep this all in mind as we as we move ahead. But uh, Dr. Wise, uh, uh, you know, keep on keep on trying there, and uh, good luck with your little league team. Hey, listen, we got about ten minutes less uh, left. I want to do this um, case, this letter from Ben Stull. Yeah, I thought it was a terrific topic, and we've all experienced this. So the bottom line here is, I, I want to distill this down. Uh, he's got a really sick eighty-three-year-old dyspneic palpitations, quote-unquote, buckets of sweat pouring off the guy, tachycardic and wheezing. Several hours later, he... Uh, uh, excuse feels- me, just admit him. <laughs> just admit him, okay? We're done now. Several hours later, after steroids and nebulization treatments, he is looking quite a bit better. He calls the hospitalist for what he thinks is a slam-dunk admission, as I think most people would agree. Um and, he, and the hospitalist says, well, the guy's pulse ox is normal, and he wants Dr. Stull to send him home. And uh, you know what happens next. Uh, they get into this uh, some quote-unquote somewhat heated debate, and Dr. Stull rightly says he's not consulting him for his medical advice regarding this case. He wants him to be admitted to the hospital. The hospital insists he is, in fact, acting as a consultant, and like other consultants, reserves the right not to accept a patient for whom he d- thinks admission is not warranted. So ultimately, the hospitalist pulled the usual stunt. He begrudgingly consents to admit the patients uh, because it's more work for me to discharge him than to uh, admit him. So I'll just bring him in and send him home in a few hours. And so there. Um, Yeah, right, right. And we've all heard these hospitals do this. And, you know, I, I know a hospitalist. Who, they never send them home in a few hours. They're, no, they're there, there for three days. Three Honest days. to goodness. They, they are, yeah. You cannot get out of the hospital in less than three days. You know, it, it, the, the, just the discharge paperwork yeah. takes that long. And, but in yeah, any that's case. If the, that's if you're the pizza delivery man, it takes three days. If you're a patient, it's longer than that, right? So here's the issue here. Apparently, this hospitalist was the only person available at the time. Obviously, it was 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, I'm not so sure that was really true, but that's what uh, Dr. Stull says. So the question, and I think it's a great one, is how much protection does the emergency physician have if a quote-unquote consultant comes in and discharges a patient who you think should be clearly uh, admitted? So they took this to their group, and uh, they had varying opinions. Uh, But interestingly enough, some felt, that their liability ended when another doctor accepted care, even if he did not physically see the patient, which is obviously absolutely nutty. Not so fast. And, uh, and in um, this group we of doctors, case, right? I don't know how big the group is, but they had one really smart guy. There was yeah. only one dissenter, and he felt that the liability persisted for the emergency physicians if something bad happened and the EP knowingly allowed another doctor to do something that in the emergency physician's opinion endangered the patient and that further action was required of the emergency physician to find someone to care for the patient. I think that basically you and I both agree with this one doctor in the group and, and, I, I, and maybe Dr. Stull also is, uh, took that position because I have seen cases where physicians were sued for allowing some kind of quote-unquote doctor or consultant to come in and do something that was grossly wrong. Right. Correct. You and I both have seen those cases. Uh, the famous Johnson case in Pennsylvania had to do with this exact same scenario. And the bottom line is, if you wouldn't let them send your favorite Uncle Louie home, 
don't let them send somebody else's Uncle Louie home. I mean, you know, you and I all have a feeling that, uh, you know, this is the one you got to go. And the truth of the matter is, in my entire career, most of the interns would say, okay, Greg, Greg, I'll give you this one. Uh, You've been right on a lot of them. You usually send people home. I'll take this one. But I mean, I think we have to be, we can't forget the order of who we're responsible to. We're responsible to the patient. We're not responsible to the consultant. We're not responsible to the consultant's insurance company that doesn't want him admitting the case. And I think if we forget that order, um, I don't. If you're a guy who who acquiesces this easily, I don't want you as my doctor. <laughs> I want somebody taking care of me. One last point here, Greg. I love this part. He said he just recently subscribed and has started listening from the beginning. And to let him know if we've discussed this topic in the past. So this poor doctor is listening to five years worth of risk management monthly. And um, uh, g- good luck, doctor. Uh, I appreciate your, your, your uh, conscientiousness. Yeah, yeah, he's very good. I, I mean, I, I can't believe that. Um, by the way, what you should have told him, Rick, is just to listen to the year-end summaries uh, that we do each June, and, and, and they're pretty good, actually. Actually, isn't it time for us to do a summary? Did we next screw, ne- did we, we next up? month? Next month we're going to do one, Rick. Next month we will do one. Okay, listen. Don't worry. I think but, that uh, we have one more left, but I don't think we really have time for that. If you do wish to talk about uh, wines and the like, we cannot. We cannot have a month without wine of the month. I mean, I mean that would be that would be immoral illegal, probably fattening. So let's, let's just speak for a minute. We're, we're moving across the world. We're going back to Australia, to New South Wales, uh, one of my favorite areas. And let me point out that they have some value wines. If you're looking for great value for your money, there's something called Hope Estates in Hunter Valley, which is terrific. Logan in Orange and Shaw Vineyards Estates in the Canberra district. That's around where the capital is. And it's just terrific. And let me point out one, just a little higher class that I've personally visited. I've been hosted at uh, Di Bartoli uh, uh, Wines, uh, which which are just terrific. There's a, a new one, um, a uh, 2009 Noble One, and a, a uh, non-vintage uh, Black Noble, which are absolutely fantastic. They're, they're great, full-bodied uh, Australian wines. They go for, they're a little more than we usually spend on this program, but you can get it for about 30 bucks a bottle. It, it, in fact, the taster involved from this, from, from the wine advocate, says the uh, Noble one he would give a 94 to. That's like the 200 bottle dollar a bottle of French wines. This is a good one. So uh, keep that in mind. Keep that one in mind, and we'll stick the uh, we'll stick the website uh, as to where to get it. Uh, wait, a, wait, wait, wait a minute. You, you need some full disclosure. You said that they already took you down there and got you drunk you know, on this stuff, and now you're you're like selling this thing here. No, I'm not. I, I'm not website? selling. They don't give me any money, Rick. This isn't like some of these guys pushing drugs, okay? I, I mean, I, I have been to the, to the vineyard. Uh, I've met the vintner. I, I like the stuff, uh, but he, he does not. 
And I am giving you full disclosure now. I didn't even get a free bottle of wine when I was down there. So come on now. Give me a break. All right. All right. All right. So listen, all right. Um, before we sign off here, I have to kind of apologize that during this recording, there was some in and outs on Skype. You know, it is just not, I don't know. Uh, we have to work better to see if we can you know, not have these dropouts, but there were a few here and there during those dropouts. Generally, Greg was talking and nothing important was said. You can trust me on that. <laughs> um, and listen, Greg, we got to get together soon. Um, we should, we should do it an issue in person, um, by, um, for July. That's for sure. We ought to get together. We'll do it, Rick. Are you going to invite me up to your cottage? Quote unquote, you know, your 7,000-foot cottage on uh, Lake Michigan? <laughs> it's a shack. It's yes, a I'm veritable sure. shack, but uh, it has a reasonable wine cellar, and we will, uh, we will hoist a glass while overlooking the Manitou Islands and Sleeping Bear Dunes. Actually, I'd like to come up there, so I'm going to tell everybody that uh, we need to do this in person. And, you, you know, I invite you out here all the time. <laughs> so I'm coming to Michigan, man. Okay. All, All right. right. Well, this is this is Greg Henry and Rick Bucata. Bye bye. Issue of uh, Risk Management Monthly. Thanks for listening. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. 